I'm very sorry, but my Buffy fans know who these people remind us of, and that is the Watchers Council, who are in charge, Dan, of the Slayers, and they do it from England, and they're just like a bunch of dicks who try to control everything, even though they're not in the field. Can't believe you thought I didn't know that. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. It's 10.30, why don't you sleep? I'm afraid. Sally. I know, you're not Thomas Edison. Welcome to They Coined It. (laughs) Hey, Roberta. The Roberta is horse version. (laughs) You sound very randy and knowing, as uh, as Ken Cosgrove would say. Or just... Sexy and phlegmy. Yeah, it's one of the same. <laughs> you know, I think there is a kind of a, for all the 10 plus years now we are past even the, the, the debut of Mad Men, kind of a cultural moment for the mid-60s. Because I see a lot of things, a lot of things. And the most recent is if you've seen on HBO, now HBO Max, the Tina Turner documentary. Have you seen this? I haven't yet. I have. Oh, boy. It has been highly recommended by... Um, people I know and critics I respect. So yeah, it's on the list. Yeah, it's quite good. It takes you through that time period, late 50s and into the 70s, obviously, but all the way through this this mid-60s period. It, it's a phenomenal story. And what I the big takeaway for me, she has the kind of talent that you could put her behind three brick walls enclosed in some kind of, you know, soundproof box, and you will still see her talent. And the amount of shit that she had to endure over the course of her life. Personally, well before meeting Ike, her mom, it's a disaster, her, her her childhood. But I walked away going, can you just imagine the magnitude of talent that one person can have to endure all of that and still be known around the world? It will stun you if you're not already a, 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 an expert on Tina Turner because it's, it's unbelievable what they take you through. You know, honestly, the earlier stuff with Ike, just had a a grit that I loved. And then later, as she blew up, What's Love Got to Do With It is just less my, that kind of mainstream pop Just super thing. mainstream. It's not my, it's a, it's not right. especially my jam. But I also remember like watching her perform just on like SNL with Rod Stewart, the two of them just tearing it up. And she is this ball, this flame, this searing, energetic fucking force. I just walked away and go, that might be the most talented woman in show business history. All right. You'd think we weren't here to talk about maybe one of the most talked about episodes of Mm. Mad Men. You know, certainly one of the top 10 or 20 talked about episodes of television. I I think that's fair. What I want to say before we, we get into it is... I was nervous. I got nervous. Is like, how are we going to do the best job we can do to talk about this? And the answer is, we're going to do it like we do every other episode. But what we are going to do is, in our show notes, we're going to put lots of this is this lots of references for you to read up other takes on this much taked on episode. There's a video that I actually did the the voice for one of my earlier works, not my strongest voice work, but the video is fantastic. And it's based on what is considered to be the quintessential take from Amanda Marcotte, Amanda Marcotte, Marcotte. Amanda Marcotte, comparing the actual traction of Lois on the tractor to the 
the Zapruder film of the Kennedy procession and then assassination. Amanda wrote this incredible piece. Kevin B. Lee did a video essay with her permission. And then I did the voiceover for that. So I'll include a link to that. There's tons of great writing about this episode in particular. I mean, there's tons of great writing about Mad Men and yada yada. But this episode. But this episode inspired just, you know, reams and reams. So we'll definitely link to some of the more prominent ones. And then I just also want to mention, you know, there's always Mad Men Carousel and the chapter in there. Don't forget that one too. You know, definitely like enjoy this episode. Don't enjoy this episode. Be horrified with this episode. um, But enjoy our episode and then keep reading because this is as eminently chewable as Mad Men gets. Spoiler alert, (laughs) there's blood. Okay, Guy walks into an advertising agency written by Robin Veith and Matthew Weiner, directed by Leslie Linka-Glotter. The original air date was September 20th, 2009, and it takes place over June 30th to July 2nd, 1963. The office was supposed to be closed July 3rd and 4th. These guys are now coming for the second and third. We never get to the third in the episode because things go a little fluey on the second. (laughs) If you need to know what happens on this episode, (laughs) the summary is as follows. PPL London makes a surprise visit to Sterling Cooper on on the July 4th, over the July 4th holiday. Uh, Don is led to believe he may be getting a promotion. Greg Harris does not get the chief resident uh, position at the hospital. So surprising. Sally Draper is having difficulty adjusting to baby Jean in the house. And one of the visitors from London, Guy McKendrick, gets run over by a lawnmower in the Sterling Cooper office and loses his foot. You know, one of the things that's interesting, as is our way with Mad Men, you know, when there is an episode that I remember specifically, and I I say me, but I think I'm a, I can be an avatar for a lot of us, for a lot of these. Like, guy walks into an advertising agency, I know what happens. What happens is guy gets his foot chopped off. But there's so much I don't remember. I forgot it was, I actually forgot about Sally and the baby, which, which that has a more direct tie-in because there's a little bit of a horror thing. Um, But I forgot about I forgot about what happens with Lane Price. I forgot about what happens with Roger. Greg Harris. Exactly. That's right. I forgot that this was the episode that was Joan's last day that gets snarfed. I forgot about um, (laughs) Burt Cooper sending Roger and Don to get their hair did or their shaves or whatever Mm -hmm. over at Angela's. Oh, yeah. I love that. Right. Everybody wants Martin and Lewis. Exactly. I mean, this was (laughs) yet again a robust episode and it's remembered for this one thing and it's hard not to remember it for this one thing oh and connie hilton returns and connie hilton returns (laughs) not insignificantly insane insane so yeah so we're we're jam-packed what struck me upon rewatching it was it still has the power to shock jesus because the pacing you know you could you can say look there's there's been a ton of fiction that is intentionally taking place the summer of 1963 why because it's a metaphor for losing innocence and blah 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 and then the fall comes and everything goes to shit and okay and so there's tons of that and this is a little bit of a microcosm of that where everything is sort of placid and meandering and going on at its own pace prior to <laughs> prior to Guy McKendrick losing his foot and it just happens out of nowhere. So you didn't know that it was the calm before the storm, but there was certainly the storm. So even watching it now, I was not thinking, oh, oh yeah, there's a ton of foreshadowing about this. You know, it's like there really isn't. Other than the lawnmower appearing in the office, there's nothing to presage the event. There's sort of two 
categories of things that could have you prepared. One of them is there are some there are some hints, there are some foreshadowings, you know, in the text. For for example, you go back a few weeks, Lois's prank call says something about that she's disfigured and needs to live near a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And then last, I think it was last episode, she catches her scarf in the copier. So she's not so good with machinery to the point of danger. We all should we all should we all should have known. No, but those are <laughs> those are classic foreshadowing yeah, devices, are- right? Rogers mm-hmm. Rogers story about his father losing his arm was this episode that was not subtle that's when funny. you know it's coming <laughs> right um no that's and true. there are others so that's kind of like one category of just like good literary foreshadowing but the other thing is this episode really is a slasher film when you're watching it as I did this time knowing knowing that this is coming Every time you're in the office, I mean, there's one point where the there's four of them all lined up together, and I'm like, oh god, these are the guys that get splattered, and it wasn't. <laughs> Pete was in it, where Pete wasn't in the four, and that's why I say gift. There's such that that became one of the most gift gifts. <laughs> What's important is they're wearing all they're, they're all wearing, wearing white. Their jackets are off, and yeah. they're wearing white shirts. <laughs> you're tensed because now you know that it's a slasher film because you don't the first time you're watching it at all. Yes, yeah, right. you're just watching Mad Men, but this time watching it to your point, you're tensed, and oh my god, and it's around the corner and it's coming in any moment and da, da, da. and then when it happens it's still like I screamed but honestly not until Pete and uh, excuse me Peggy and Joan are having their little conversation when it's moments away do I think oh it's it's about to happen I didn't even I, I I'm not like sitting there waiting for it or like the whole time when do we get to it I'm just like watching as if it's another episode knowing we'll get to it but not but not cringing that's awesome because I was the opposite I was poised and poised and poised, and it still got me. That's my point. So either way. It's pretty powerful, right? That's great pacing for a great slasher film. No question. So Mr. Hookah does the (laughs) announcement and Lane uh, about them coming for the week. And it's kind of this nonsense excuse about they didn't know about the holiday, which is so goofy. It was something really in that filming, too, of them standing on the stairs. Like it was very as though they were on. It was very, very formal formally yeah. shot they were it was like they were all at a podium and they weren't they right. were just hanging out in the office but it looked very grandiose right but it was very keeping with the season which was how much the office has changed with the new ownership right like this was like this is the way they do things now perhaps and uh so it's coming and then and then that goes right into this speculation uh roger and don and cooper meet in cooper's office and they immediately say to don we think this is all about you. We think this is about some kind of an announcement for you. They're so bamboozled by what you do and they love it, blah, blah, blah. So Don, in a very, I would say, very uh, remarkable way for Don, he, this gets under his skin. This gets in his head. It does. Don's not like Don's not like that. No. Nope. You know, Don's the guy that can get wooed by McCann and kind of brush it off. Yet this thing really is is a bit of a, a an earworm for him. He hints at it to Betty. She's like, what do you know? Right? right. If he's mentioning it to Betty, you know he thinks it's real. That's right. So if you know Don's really thinking about it, it's really getting to him. We've no reason to believe whether it's true or not true, but just watching Don, you know, kind of savor the moment of, of this potential promotion is enough to kind of get us a little bit sold on it, I think. So a lot going on, though, that Draper's house. We've got Sally. And this is where we also get into the genre of this. And again, you don't know that the first time you're seeing it. There's no reason to think that these are parts of a thing. That's right. At all. But you've got Sally completely freaked out. We don't really understand why. 
but she's now afraid of the dark. We get her a nightlight. Betty tries to be a nice mother going against every bit of her <laughs> grain. She's like, I bought you something. What? You ungrateful. <laughs> like She just, she doesn't have the genes. It's brutal. But we've seen her be sweet with Sally. It's not like she doesn't have, it's not like it's not there. She just can't seem to, I, I guess it's sort of like when you're a kid, you sometimes know when parents are making an effort or not. You learn when they're when they're trying to see things the way you do, and part of being a kid is realizing that I mean it's less so now. Realizing that adults, you, you need to see things like them. They don't need to see things like you. There's a lot of that growing up. But as a kid, you notice when parents do, and when a parent is obviously trying to make this effort, which is what this whole scene is with giving the Barbie to to Sally. You know, Betty ought to know better. <laughs> so she's not incapable. She's just she's just she's just not trying. I don't think. It's not that Betty doesn't love her children. Mm -mm. It's not that she is devoid of feelings at all for her children. But she's not a natural great mother beyond the, the bare minimum of what could make a mother a natural great mother. And there are broadly two different ways to view children as somebody who is there to fulfill your expectations or as human beings who are complicated. And Betty never gets to that second one, ever. <laughs> the best she ever does is remembers that they are a little person who needs some kind of mothering. But it's still within a, a, you know, a structure for her. I'm doing this thing for you. I'm doing the mothering thing now. Right. Now you need right. to comply. Now do your part, right? Now exactly. do your part. So, right. She starts out really good. The premise... The, the the conceit of this exchange is very sweet and I think very, you know, not that hard to get right. You know, your baby brother got you a gift and angels do it. And, and that's very sweet. And Sally, who's still, I guess, nine or ten, should 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 cling on, should, should know that that's an adult trying to relate to you and kind of kind of do the right thing. I think Sally's certainly bright enough to, to get that. Betty completely screws it up. <laughs> she can't she can't sell it. No. She can't sell this deed, this good-natured, good offering, and saying it's from your brother and it's a real peacemaker. She just can't. I don't know what it is. She just sort of shits on her own bed. Sally has not gotten over the loss of her grandfather. She has not gotten over being angry at Betty for how that was handled. She's been acting out in school, mm -hmm. and now there's a baby. So for Sally, this is all one continuum, and she hasn't evolved. That's a really good point. And the last person in the world who can address that is her mom. And now she's got it all mix mixed up. Here's the horror part. She literally has decided that this baby is, like, possessed by her grandfather or something, right? That's what she finally says at the end. And Betty's lack of tolerance at the end at when Sally screams. Because what we were missing from this episode was a good old-fashioned, long, <laughs> blood-curdling scream. Yeah, slasher scream. And we got it. And Betty was like, fuck that kid. <laughs> and then Don, you know, Don was wonderful. Actually, I, I want to touch back on that moment at the end. But in between, what you've got is a suburbs and a dark, creepy house and a scary doll. You've got all these perfect ingredients for a great slasher film. I mean, that's right. I mean, the doll returning <laughs> from this little girl's perspective who literally believes there's a haunting sure. happening. It was perfect. It is perfect. It's great. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Daddy. Hey. 
Hey, I got you. I got you. Just breathe. Back at the office where the visit's happening, out of nowhere, completely unannounced, is this new guy, this guy McKendrick. There's no backstory. There's no lead up. There's just here he is. And we hear that he's this whiz-bang account guy and this amazing background and experience, yada, yada. Instead of them wanting to come observe Don, it's come observe our new shiny toy. One thing I want to point out, and I would never have noticed it, except I heard this, it might have been a documentary, it might have been a something, in Forrest Gump, when you meet Lieutenant Dan, I think he's wearing shorts, like long shorts, maybe I could be wrong about that, but you get the strength of his legs Mm -hmm. because he eventually loses loses them. them. And I noticed this time, and again, if I had never heard that or seen that, this thought would not have occurred to me, but this guy, Guy McKendrick, it's a walkabout, but there's a real strength in his legs. There's a real, it's it's a very (laughs) unique strut. It's not a regular strut. And I'm like, that's not an accident. Like this guy is a, is a walking walk guy. (laughs) A walking piece of confidence. It's worth talking about. I find him fascinating for, he's for, he is fascinating for, for the fact that we'll never see him again. And he's only in this one episode. And he'll never play golf again. He'll never play golf again, right? He's he's touted as this amazing account guy. Then we get to see a little bit of his charm. Well, before he even gets to Pete, um, <laughs> I always laugh at Paul Kinsey playing the guitar in his office. That oh to my me God. is the- <laughs> That was hilarious. Because, that, because every before time that, I laugh because at before that, that, they goof on his beard. Hooker says, you have to shave your beard just to, just to troll him. And then he's like, ha ha, just kidding. I was trolling you. And then he fucking goes and plays the guitar. <laughs> Like, Paul is not going to not let us down. (laughs) So we see Guy begin to uh, walk through the office, and he is introduced to Pete Campbell. And he says the line, I know everything about you. You're a very impressive fellow. And Pete responds as a way, you know, rather honestly, saying, like, I don't even know you. I don't even know who you are. It's like, wish I could return the compliment or something like that. Yeah, it was, I wish I could return the compliment. It's a great exchange. Like, I remember the very first time I saw it, I'm like, does he really know much about this guy or whatever? And then goes right to Peggy and uses the exact same line with her. And so for all the charm and whiz-bang account guy stuff, you also get this note of how practiced and perhaps disingenuous this guy is, right? So we it's still a mystery, I think, to the viewer. Yes. Listen, how, how many disingenuous people are very successful in advertising? I'm going to say a lot. So, so it's not a matter of that, you know, these things don't square up. They could totally square up. But I think we're still left wondering just how genuine a person Guy McKendrick is. I think I went through it again in the opposite order. They walk in with him and, and I was immediately distrusting him. And then he says the line the first time, I know everything about you. You're a very impressive fellow. And I was like, oh, wow, that's charming. <laughs> like, I was <laughs> right, charmed. Right. He's good. Right, yeah. And then he says it again to Peggy. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. But but <laughs> it's still charming. And in fact, <laughs> disarming. Oh, see what I did there? Dislegging. It totally reminded me of, as great lines in your own pocket go, it reminds me of Vicky the prostitute way back in Three Sundays, walking in and saying to Roger Sterling, I'm in a very good mood. Because it's (laughs) like, it's perfect. It just, it handles so much. It puts you over there, but it puts you at ease, but does it, but it doesn't matter because I've just controlled the situation. That's right. It's very good, Guy McKendrick. It is very good. But as writing goes... I would say it's a phenomenal device to put the audience a little bit back on its heels as to saying, wait a minute, we 
we don't know a thing about this guy. And he's actually not going to, we could listen to him all day and not know where the hell he is on anything. And that's, that's a very effective device in the script to just quickly put a big question mark over this guy. Do we like him? Do we not? He's charming as hell, but what the hell is he? Just skipping ahead to what happens to him for a moment. Hey, he's a politician. He's there to make you feel great in the moment. And, you know, JFK and the charm and how great looking he was and the youth and all of that, it ends up being a really great sort of parallel for a lot of different things. But in the moment, it's a wonderful way to to leave the audience shaking its head at who this guy is. And I, I love stuff like that. Pete and Peggy were standing in for us. It's so common for you to meet a new character on a show and it's a name you haven't heard before, but they're all familiar with them. But this was genuinely... Who the fuck? Everybody's confused. Who the fuck right. is Guy McHendrick? But in every other show, his first few exchanges of dialogue with people would tell you a lot about him. Oh, you're from Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn last week. Whatever it was, and you'd get you'd get a whole bunch of exposition that would clear a bunch of stuff up so things can move along. This just muddies the water more. <laughs> because everybody's reacting to this guy. It's exactly that. It's this guy. His name is Guy. He's a guy. He's this guy. There is no... You, very, that's actually a really astute, right, right, astute exactly. observation. the most generic name. We have exactly. li- We don't... Nothing gets filled in. All we know about him... Is he's a guy. Is he's a Rorschach <laughs> test for whatever we might think about him, what they think about him. We never even get the chance. We never get I mean, a chance. We, we never do. All we see is sort of introductory Is he charm. the angel? Is he the devil? Is he... We don't know. He's just, he turns into a ghost, basically, the way That's right. The way baby Jean isn't. <laughs> well, we're going to debrief Mr. Price, and the plan is for you to join us for luncheon. In the conference room at one o'clock. <laughs> Sounds like Agatha Christie. So we never find out what the character of Guy McKendrick is, but we do know, and like I said, he's a, he's a Rorschach test in some ways. He's, he's, at this point, he's whatever people are putting on him and what we are putting on him. Mm. But we do find out a bit more about PPL, about these people (laughs) as an entity. That's a good point. So we've got this scene with Lane Price and the snake. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's the first part of the zigzag, right? It's the zig part where Lane, you're going to Bombay. And they're there and you always do what you're told. And they literally say it. Yeah, you're, one of your best qualities is you always do as you're told. It's like, what the fuck is that? In case it didn't hurt that we just kicked you, we're kicking you again. Right, right. And let's face it, that's a completely uh, believable career path is that you have these sure. people that just travel the world and upend their lives every time. And he says, my kids are in school and blah, blah, blah. And they could give a shit. <laughs> this is not a family-friendly environment. No. At PPL. You are expected to... To, to uproot and do whatever. And we've already met Lane's wife, who's not a fan of New York. I'm sure she'll be a fan of Bombay. So that's the deal. They, they give him the news and they're very patronizing and disrespectful, frankly. And you just see their cruelty. You see their callousness. You see their, the true character of, of what they are about. Now, again, we don't know where Guy fits into that as a person, but he is a part of the, he is a cog on that wheel for sure. Yeah, and that takes place just as the boardroom meeting starts. So we go in there, and they announce, actually, to everyone, Lane is going to Bombay. It's fait accompli. It's going to happen. And then they get into the restructuring. And instead of Don being some <laughs> some, some elevated position, he's now reporting to Guy McKendrick. 
They just put in another layer, right? Yeah, it's, it's paper shuffling. It's classic paper shuffling. I remember hearing hearing about this uh, years ago. This was at an agency that I ended up working for. But before I ever got there, some big kind of head honcho got a demotion. And how he got a demotion was they just put in another layer above him. And yeah. everybody else, and then everybody else started to move up around him. It's very Catch-22. If you've read, if you've read the book Catch-22, that's the kind of thing that would take place. Very bureaucratic type of machinations. So everything's sort of different, but it's really the same. And Don's staying put, but he's working for Guy. And even Cooper is on there as chairman emeritus for whatever that means for the for the agency. And of course, Roger's complete. <laughs> and I have this, I, the same thing happens to me every time. I've probably watched this, I don't know, maybe four or five times. Every time I watch it, I don't even notice that Roger's not on the chart. That's right. I'm I'm as surprised as everyone when <laughs> Cooper notices and points it out. Like, oh yeah, that's right. So Roger needs to be written in. So that's a great Nothing great, humiliating about that. Great illustration of where he stands in the in the scheme <laughs> of things. And of course, Harry Crane failing upward time and time again. Amazing. Gets, you know, some elevated position for for television and media buying, which is awesome <laughs> to watch because he doesn't even realize it. <laughs> Again, more Catch-22. This is just wild. Yeah, It's a very Catch-22, very Joseph Heller kind of structure there. So everybody's clearing out and Roger, you know, is kind of shaking his head and says, what did he say that to Harry? What the hell just happened? They reorganized us and you're the only one in this room who got a promotion. Really? Yes, really. But I also want to point out another laugh out loud moment. McKendrick says, we know there's been a lot of um, change around here, but there'll be no more reduction in staff. And Harry spontaneously <laughs> starts applauding. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. You know, again, we're going to link to all these essays. One of them is that my sister did a whole genre piece on what other episodes genres are. And she's the one who came up with that this one is Tarantino. And part of it is all the laughter. And we'll get to the laughter on the other side of things when it gets really dark and there's so much laughter. But the fact that the name of the title of the episode is a joke. Yeah, it's the start of a joke. The comedy, the black comedy, the all of it. It's it's a very, very funny episode. It it really it really is. There's some great comedy in this. And it's a slasher and film, right? So it's like woo. All of it. All of it. So all that's happened. Things look like they're going in this direction of of now Don's not going to London. He's not doing this. He was obviously got his head filled up with those thoughts. But effectively nothing's changed except now he's reporting to Guy. They <laughs> they leave out and, and Cooper says, I'm sorry for my wild imagination. This is crazy. So from there, there's Greg and Joan. We are finally at Joan's last day. The surprise party was supposed to be on the second because they were closed the third. Which Hooker obviously, you know, shits on that too. Yeah, Hooker's just a shit. Isn't that horrible? He's terrible. I love when Hildy is like, why did you do that? Like, she was so great. She was really, really clear with him. So Joan leaves to to go home. She's making dinner for Greg, expecting to get the, the decision at work that he's become chief resident. But if you're paying attention at all, you know that Greg's not a good surgeon and they're making all these plans as if he's getting chief resident. And I'm thinking two things as a viewer. One, they think so little of the medical profession that Greg can become chief <laughs> chief resident as a horrible doctor. <laughs> That's completely likely in the madman world. Or that the rug's going to get pulled out from under them. He's not going to get chief resident. And all these plans and Joan quitting and everything is going to go to shit. And of course, she's there late. He hasn't come home and she's waiting in the dark. And, and it's clear that he's drunk. It's clear that he's 
not in a good mood. She knows he's full of shit, right? Because he said he called and he didn't and all this. To me, that was very significant. When she says, you're lying. This is, to me, the crux of this relationship. She goes from you're lying to, okay, what can we do? And what are we going to do? And what's the reality? Those are sort of the different places she is, is like being wonderful and being the best possible wife. And and Joan strategizer, she was like, you're lying. She didn't miss a beat saying you're lying. That's not a first time lie. For all the kind of you know, Helen Gurley Brown and I'll say lighthearted, but frivolous certain things that that Joan's character sometimes is engaged in. Um, she has a very this in this commitment. The way that she is with Greg is sort of she knows she's not pleased with him overall and in this moment, but she can take this news and sort of say, OK, so what happens next? How does this go? There's no ranting and raving. There's no blaming. There's no finger pointing. There's no but you said or any of that. She's not making it worse. How often when we get bad news do we make it worse? Joan is able to just sort of absorb it. And even if she is roiling inside, which you know she is, how do we put ourselves on on solid footing and go forward? That's really her approach. Well, she starts too with, oh, wait, what does that mean? You're still a doctor. Wait, are you still a surgeon? Well, I'll never do surgery. Did they fire you? Right. He has, she has no idea. It does a little bit make it worse, not to any fault of her, just because he's such a fucking baby. Well, yeah, it's because he hasn't explained it to and her. And then she, he's like, why are you pushing me? That's not what he says, but that's how he acts. Like, you know, I can't take the right. pressure. All she's trying to do is get the, what exactly does this mean? These are perfectly reasonable questions. Because she's saying, what does this mean for this marriage? Exactly. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? Do we have to move? Didn't he say Alabama or something? Like, yes, I can be a surgeon, not in New York. Okay. And if I stay in New York, then I'm not a surgeon. So what's more important? But these are things that she's rightfully trying to separate. Just sort out and understand. And he's he doesn't get any of that because he's it's all about him. They're completely on different they're on different pages here and approaches and directions. It's meaningful that, you know, the last shot of her turning out the light, because that's this is Joan's light is turning, is going out at this point. The last thing he says is, you, you need to stay at your job. And she says, no, Greg, that's done. And he says, we'll find another one. And, you know, that's fully deflating for her. All of it. All of that. Everything. All those pieces. Yeah, this is the bill of goods that she's been sold. You know, that, that scene is, is heartbreaking on many levels. But I think it thoroughly demonstrates just how completely different worlds these two are living in. They're not able to pick each other up. And I think Joan's trying and it's not working. He's not there. And part of what happens when you've been sold a bill of goods, and this definitely relates in this circumstance, is you bought that bill of goods. And Greg is someone who, toward the end of season two, showed Joan who he is and she married him anyway. And now we're at the point where she can say right out loud without batting an eye, you're lying. Part of her rage that she's dealing with and and trying to manage so that it doesn't do the worst to the marriage. I mean, that's really, she's really committed to this marriage and not letting her own anger that's building and building ruin it or provoke him, both of those things. But also part of that rage is at him, but part of it is at herself because she does know better and oh, she sure. did she willingly buy this bill of goods. And, and it's the bill of goods of him, but then it's also the bill of goods that we saw she had bought into on in the pilot. That's right. If you play your cards right, blah, blah, blah. She's been playing that game the whole time and she backed the wrong horse. So that's what's going on back at back at the Harris apartment. And 
Let's take a break. It's a good break time. Yeah, let's do it. There's, there's much to cover on the other side, so come on back. Hey, want to let you know what's been happening on our Patreon page. If you don't know what Patreon is, it is a website designed so that fans of different things to be fans of have a way to support the thing they're a fan of, like say your favorite podcast or even one of your top 10 favorite podcasts. Dan and I had a lot of fun trying to figure out and ultimately, hopefully, ways that we could thank our patrons. So we've actually started doing an extra episode to accompany the weekly episode. Basically, once we've listened to the final episode that we're going to drop for the week, we get back together and we're like, well, here's a couple other things we thought of. And we named that extra little podcast eminently chewable which is the thing dan always says that the show is and the show is so we talk more about it and you can also get our thursday episodes on mondays so head on over there's some other fun opportunities and yes the merch is coming keep an eye on our social keep an eye on our instagram and twitter at tci mad men pod but yeah we've been cooking up a bunch of stuff check us out thank you for supporting us and thank you for listening if you do not want to head over to patreon that's fine keep listening we will be here let's get back to it so the Brits are coming? The Brits are coming. <laughs> Which Roger says in so many words. I just, I love all the little the little touches here. You know, um, Joan's got their itinerary laid out. Uh, you're going to La Grenouille, <laughs> which is, it had just opened. You know, New York in the 60s was like this burgeoning, Jackie O was like big into French culture and it affected lots of different things. So French cuisine, there wasn't much of an American diet or an American kind of restaurant thing back then. Southern comfort food as a niche kitsch thing wasn't a respected New York yeah, thing. Yeah, you weren't seeing barbecue joints That's in right. the corner. That's right. And of course, London is known for, or it was always known for not, not having great food. Right, the British. But being European, it was all about French food, right? So I just love the idea of they're going to see Oliver, which was a British play. That was an unnoted thing. If these guys were into musicals, they've already seen it three years earlier. Oliver initiated in the West End in 1960, came to Broadway in 1963. So I, I just think it's really funny. They got them the hottest Broadway ticket and it happens to be a British a British musical. Yeah, well, they love coming to New York City and acting like they're still in London. So that's right. <laughs> French food and, and everything else. So that's all set up. Lagrinui is still open, which is insane. Lutece comes up on Mad Men a number of times. That's closed. Le Cirque Basque. And there's just a number of like name brand New York-based French restaurants that, that were hoity-toity. Oat French cuisine from the 60s. They're all closed. Lagrinui is still in operation. You can still get the foie gras and the, the escargot. I mean, it's just the menu is right out of 1960s. We'll, we'll link to that because it's fun. That's their itinerary. They're all here. And you can kind of feel this anticipation. And here's where you might crack a little bit of a genuine note on Guy McKendrick, right? He gives this toast for Joan. This is someone he's just met, hasn't met, you know, doesn't know from, from anyone. And he gives this very sincere sounding toast, right, to her future. And I, you know, I haven't had the chance to work with you, but from what I hear, and it's lovely. It's a lovely toast. It really is. It really right? is. But but to your <laughs> earlier point, rubber stamp it. Like he could have said that to anybody leaving. He perhaps could have. You don't know. You don't know. Every single time he says, I know you, I know all about you, he either did or didn't do that research that he said. You can see whatever you want in it. <laughs> it's the Rorschach test, right? You never know. It's so funny. No way to know. But Joan notably But it lands. Well, it doesn't just land. Now Joan's 
Joan now knows what she knows. Joan's got her own mishigas, and Joan bursts into tears. Obviously, we know that it's more than just being a little bit moved by the fact that she's leaving and she got a beautiful toast, but also Joan doesn't cry at the office <laughs> That's right. ever. Yeah, exactly. And we know this is her rule. You do not cry in the office, let alone in front of people. And she loses her shit. She is really on the edge about what is happening. That leads us into the party. Now the party started, right? And Roberta loves a good party at Sterling Cooper. Yeah, I didn't love this one. <laughs> and I, again, it was really hard to tell. I was on the edge of my seat, not looking forward to this moment. <laughs> You know, we forgot to mention that the John Deere has already been ridden in. Yeah, there's a great there's a great piece of setup with Ken Cosgrove on the eve of the visit. He he didn't just land an account. He gets to like park this thing in the in the lobby for the new owners to see. Oh, we just landed John Deere. Yep. Who got that? Oh, Ken Cosgrove. That's great. So he yeah, he's in the catbird seat with all this. And my mind starts to wander and go, what? You know, where was OSHA? And you know what? I think there was even a blog post about that. I think we might be able to even link to like what kind of safety guidelines, the history of that. Well, as Roger Sterling says, somewhere in the history of this industry, this has happened before. The funniest. If there were OSHA rules, nobody gave a shit. <laughs> so there's this great party, except for except it didn't you're right. I do normally love a party on screen and I do love a madman party. And I did not love this one. It was weird. There was this tractor. Like even with it was very hard for me to do a rewatch and pretend I didn't know what was going on and I was on edge. Yeah. But I think the Oh, there's another word. It felt disjointed. It's the, every one of these wor actual words is weird. Felt compound fractured. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a party, but it was a party where everybody was on edge. Yeah. This was an election night. You've got PPL. <laughs> you've got this reorg-ish. You've got Joan leaving and you've got a fucking tractor driving around. And Don, we were just saying about acting like they never left the UK. I wondered about mm. that line about the champagne. And if it was, uh, <laughs> did you, was there anything leading up to it about what kind of champagne it was? No, oh, jo not at Didn't all. Joan make sure champagne got ordered? Yeah, yeah. But it was generic in terms of what it was. Okay. I just, just the idea of, um, oh, this is great. And someone's saying, no, it's not. Yeah, no. <laughs> and that was wonderful. It's, it's a little more foreboding than just about champagne, of course. You know, that was a, an interesting little moment. Not an important little moment, but an interesting little moment where Peggy sort of tries to like connect with Don. You go back to episodes earlier. Peggy now knows that her boss is a jerk and Peggy is looking at leaving. And Peggy is ultimately dissatisfied with the I think, imposed coldness between she and Don, given the history that they have, the rich history that they have shared. And here's one more moment where she's just like, hey, bud. And he's like, yeah, I don't like the champagne. Got to go. And that, of course, leads to Conrad Hilton. Yeah. So the call from Conrad Hilton gets Don out of the office, number one. And it's great. I mean, that's exactly what you do. You, you know, he's disenchanted with this whole setup with PPL. He didn't get the promotion he'd been he'd been thinking he about. He really th thought he was going to London. He was halfway to London in his head. And uh, Conrad Hilton calls and, you know, the lady on the other end with the, the perfect secretary that probably makes as much as Don. Come over now. Shit. I'm not, I'm not going to hang around this party with the shitty champagne and the people I don't like. So he gets out of the office and then immediately Joan and Peggy start talking. I love Peggy saying, I did listen to you and you did make a difference in my life. And what I really want to say is... <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So they start riding the lawnmower around and they get Lois Sadler in the driver's seat, <laughs> which is, again, perfectly unexpected and totally believable that they 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 have her 
<laughs> driving it, and she she just runs over Guy McKendrick's foot. She really does. There's nothing setting that up. Nothing, nothing. at all. <laughs> I mean, part of it is this is Mad Men, and we can just chop a guy's foot off. That's right. And again, I go read all the other pieces. Because it's like, there's so much we can say. There's all the metaphors. I mean, we've already been breaking down the episode. We're doing great, you know? But it's like, (laughs) they all feel a little like their foot's been cut off by this PPL thing. Bottom line is, this is Mad Men. There is no trying to predict Mad Men. Anything can happen. And how it happened was all plausible. They didn't have rules (laughs) back then. Ken Cosgrove was like, hey, you really can't drive that thing around. But we've been to their parties. And we know that, like... So what? Hey, don't do that wild and inappropriate thing. Doesn't get the loudest microphone. Surprising and perhaps not inevitable, but certainly surprising. Surprising. So now we've got guy on the ground bleeding. Yeah, and if you really want to hear the audio, <laughs> listen to it with earbuds <laughs> on on a computer as opposed to a regular. T- because the 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 sound of the crunch. Oh my god. And the sound oh my of God. the screams oh. Oh. and the sound of the crying. And it is all right there. <laughs> it packs a punch. And they they don't spare the viewer. They right, really don't. This. It's really this is, awful. This guy has gone from hail fellow well met to on the ground and, and crumbled. And, 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 you know, banging his arm in pain against the file cabinet. They do really stay with him. Now you've got Peggy passing out into Pete's arms. That was kind of, that was just lovely. That was fine. But you know, somebody's going to faint. That's fine. And then of course, who keeps their head? Who knows what to do is Joan. Joni on the spot. And the one line we didn't allude to earlier, but I will say it now, is it sure does seem like not only is Joan the one in control, composed, completely knows what to do. Lois starts going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She's like, get her out of here. Like she is managing that whole scene. And it really does seem like Joan has brains in her hands. What it was to me, it wasn't like, oh, Joan should be a doctor. No. What it was is it's highlighting the fact that, oh, this is what Greg really can't do. We don't ever see Greg be a bad doctor. That's not part of it. But we see her level of competence. It's pretty extreme, but it's still first aid. I mean, it's not, she's not doing surgery here. I said the brain's in her hands as a way to just call that douchebag out. But that's right. Joan keeping her head and taking control of an out of control situation beyond anything that anybody can imagine is Joan's gift. And Joan is going to be a gift to anything that Joan wants to be a gift to. And that's what we see here. If Joan had decided to be a doctor, Joan would be a great doctor. Well, it's like reading, it's like reading the script. She was great at it from the, from the jump. That's right. She's got the right head on her shoulders and, and brains in her head. So she's going to do great at whatever she does. But again, sold this bill of goods, right? This is what you're here for. This is how you play your cards. This is how you play the game. Go out into the world as opposed to, you know, having really all the options laid out for her, which someone of her intelligence would have made the most of in many different ways, I think, today versus the 50s or 60s. I never really thought about this. Joan reminds me of my mother. My mother is level-headed and can do anything, I would say. I mean, she's got talents and not talents, right? Like, I don't know if she could have been a doctor, but she had wanted to be a lawyer, and that was simply not an option for her. And my mom is somebody who got into college at 16 through some special something or other, And after she had her first two kids at like 20 and 22 or one or whatever, she went back to school and it was when she was pregnant with me, her third kid. And I was born in 1965, but she had a class all the way on the third floor 
or whatever. And of course the buildings, you know, it's the sixties and nothing, there was no air conditioning and she, she just couldn't handle it being pregnant. But she's somebody who was a woman of that time and did not get a career until the seventies. She started to get a career in the seventies and eighties. And when she finally went back and she got a master's and all that, and she's still working today. No, we all know these like hyper competent. And my mom keeps like cool in a situation, like cool the way Joan does. She literally saves, you know, probably saves his life to some degree. Could have bled to death. Who the hell knows? But she certainly knows what to do and and minimizes the damage. So they clean up. Guy goes off to the hospital. And I mean, they're sitting in. That's like there's like you want to talk about dark. Well, (laughs) humor ish. There's a there's a long list of phenomenal sight gags in Mad Men. Everything from the guys wrestling on outside of Pete's office when he throws a punch and just on and on. This is the number one sight gag I mean, from Mad Men for me. Unbelievable. <laughs> They're talking and he's squeegeeing blood off of the frosted window. And this is another Tarantino <laughs> shot too, because these are the the guys all now in their in their uh, white t shirts, in their somewhat yeah. splattered white t shirts. I mean, if that's not, you know, it's John perfect. Travolta and Samuel Jackson, I don't know what is, right? Like <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The and car, the and right. the cleanup crew. I mean, there they are, <laughs> literally behind them. You know, Roger loves loves comparing everything to the, his war experience. <laughs> so everything is, uh, you know, when when you know, sit down, Sissy Mary, <laughs> you look faint <laughs> or whatever. Everybody's, you know, less less capable of handling it than than he does. And I already mentioned somewhere in this business, this has happened before. He's probably right to some degree. It's the acknowledgement of that by the character that's so funny. <laughs> so Roger's sort of. Pretending like it's no big deal, but even though everybody knows it's a huge deal. And let's face it, Roger's the one who's got the least to lose, right? Because he was kind of he was kind of cast off anyway in this in this whole process. So of course Don's not there. Don heads over to to Connie's suite at the the Waldorf, which I don't know if it was a Hilton property then, but it's a Hilton property now, which is interesting. It's in the Hilton collection. Anyway, he's in the he's at the Waldorf and you know, he's taken aback when, when he sees that it's the guy from the country club. It's kind of goofy. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't quite understand when he says, how'd you find me? And he says, uh, I asked who was a good looking guy I had a long conversation with and nobody mentioned your name. It's like, I don't even know what that means. Like That doesn't explain how you found me. <laughs> It was an interesting answer, and it was an answer saying, uh, you know, I can find whoever I want, and I'm not going to tell you. I, I think you're right. I think that's, yeah, it's like, it's. do you really do you really care how I found you? I found you. But I mean, right. what he found out was, you know, he's part of a big ad firm, so he'd like to know more. I mean, who knows? I mean, this is what we don't know. What was so surprising to me in this viewing, I remember the the charm of who Connie was the first time we met him carries over into this scene for me and in and so I well it's intended yes. to it's intended to so yeah. I I was a little psyched out years back by finding this quirky and charming whereas this time I found it not charming and only sinister <laughs> frankly yeah Connie was only terrible to him in this scene and Don I was very impressed with how Don really held his ground from jump hey can I pick your brain yeah that's not a thing you pay me but it's almost like, you know, when you're in single A or double A ball, triple A looks like it's a big deal. I don't know any of those words. Minor leagues. You got single A, double A, triple A, and then the major leagues. Okay. Right? So single A ball is like when you're first drafted, okay. let's say. So if you're in single A or double A, you look up a triple A and it looks like a big deal. But it's not until you get to the major leagues when you go, yeah, when I was, triple A is still the fucking minors. You know, you're still riding a bus everywhere. 
and this is a little bit of Don, I think, thinking or, or, or trying to operate on a, on a high level. Connie, this is my business. This is what I do. You're going to pay me, blah, blah, blah. And Connie is almost like saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is the major leagues. Here's how this works. And I'm going to school you. And it's very manipulative, but Connie's on the fucking cover of Time Magazine that week. It's a whole nother level of just being a business person. It's like saying, I can ask for this. No one else can, but I can ask you to do give me one for free, number one. And number two, I'm also going to manipulate you. When you ask for my business, I'm going to tell you you didn't do it right, <laughs> which is also what he That's does. Right. But if you think about it, if you're Connie Hilton, he's not wrong about those things. It's not wrong to say, to, to get what you can, number one. It's not polite. I'm not, I'm not confusing it with, with being polite. But Connie knows what he can get from people. And what's I going to do? Walk out, of the, uh, walk out of the suite at the Waldorf and say, fuck him, he wasn't going to pay me for my opinion? No, he knows Don's going to give him advice on this. He just didn't know if he'd have to ask for it. You know, ask for one for free as opposed to just getting Don's advice on the first try. And then he uses the actual words, give me one for free. It wasn't so much that I had a problem with him asking. It was the scolding for saying no, you know, instead of showing any respect. It was every bit, every bit of it was not nice, was more than not nice. It was manipulative. Well, like I said, sinister. It's all of that. But I also think that um, it's sort of like Don thinks he's operating on an appropriate level and Connie supersedes that level. Maybe. They have other big accounts. It's just Don isn't usually the one in the room with with the Conrad Hilton. And ever since the first time I, I saw the scene, when Don first said, well, I'm not going to lie, I'd like, I'd like your business. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But then when Connie corrects him, you go, yeah, that is kind of... That is kind of amateurish <laughs> to just say, I want your business. You know what I mean? Either ask for the whole fucking thing or ask for the sun, the moon, and the stars, because that's what Connie just did, obviously. You know what I mean? Like like Don Don is a little bit in AAA, is my point. He's not an account guy. Right. He's not an account guy, number one. But it does start this, this father-son approval, disapproval back and forth relationship, which is which is really the thing. And when you think about it, the I want one for free line is an echo of Don's father in out of town when he's remembering his birth. Oh, wow. He's asking, he said, I've only got so much money. And she says, you know, he asked for one for free. Wow. Wow. That was very good. So there's, there's some of that, I think, in there too, yeah. right? You know, to me, this father-son dynamic is immediately established with these two. But the beauty of it is how it all happens. You don't even notice, <laughs> oh, they got Don out of there to meet Connie, and that's a callback to the previous episode. And then he has to be called back away because this fucking guy's got foot run over. And it's beautifully done. It's as entertaining as anything you could watch. I mean, it really is... So, so, so amazing. So then Don obviously has to go back to- He goes to the uh, hospital. Go back to, go go to the hospital. <laughs> and then we get um, we get the scene with Joan and Don. Now, you've got Joan wearing the bloodied dress, which mm-hmm. is quite, quite Jackie reminiscent yeah. of Jackie O, who was not Jackie O yet, but we always call her Jackie O, even though she was Jackie Kennedy, the first lady in that moment. She says, I bet he woke up feeling great. You know, one minute you're on top of the world, the next minute your foot's being run over by a lawnmower. And that line gets interrupted when the when the PPL guys show up. But people do laugh and tragedy. I mean, you've been through what Joan just went through. You're gonna you're gonna laugh till you cry at some point. And Joan's yeah. been through yeah. a lot in the last twenty four hours. A whole lot. I did notice, and I don't know if you caught this, and I don't know if this was something we had caught once years ago, but here it was. Don, Don says to her, you know, you're, you're really going to be missed, right? However he says that. And she mm-hmm. says, thank you, Don. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you, Don. 
we've never heard her say Don before. This is the first real scene we get with these two. It's been almost two and a half seasons. And you're like, oh God, you want you want this to be the show. You're, you're watching this, you're like, oh, please go on for another hour. But that's right. And you know, and she and again, she calls him Don for the first time. She kisses him on the cheek, right? It's All the, of the that. scene we didn't know we needed, oh, you know. Just beautiful. It's really great. You know, Lane comes in and the PPL guys come in and they they kind of reset everything. Everything gets reset. Everything that everything is as it was at the beginning of the episode. That's right. Amazingly, amazing. Oh, that's not a goddamn thing changes. And that's the way things happen, right? Some something unexpected, some total Deus ex machina event happens, and things go right back to the way they were. And what's amazing is they never even in the Mad Men universe, they never talk about this doesn't <laughs> they never speak of this again. There's never, oh, remember the time that guy McKetrick guy or whatever happened to him, or we gotta go see him in the hospital. <laughs> Done. No. Nothing. No, nothing ever happens again. And it just, Lane stays in New York, doesn't go to Pompeii, nothing. In the metaphor of it all, this episode previews the violence and the turbulence. This episode is the symbol for the busting open of what becomes the 60s that we know as the 60s. Without tagging it and without some, ob- it's not Wonder Years. We get the first mention, and this I got from watching the, the the video I mentioned earlier, the video essay, we get the first mention of Vietnam ever. Yeah, we have not right. heard that word yet. And I was wondering about that in particular. Kurt says, oh, you, does he uh, shoot the people? There were things that Kennedy was doing with the foreign relations stuff with the very corrupt South Vietnam regime in November of 1963. It was that on the doorstep of about to become a major issue for the U.S. And obviously LBJ had to deal with all of it. But I don't know how much shooting, like, was that a thing? In other words, there was there was a lot going on and perhaps South Vietnam was fighting. But I don't know that Americans were fighting. So when he says, does he do the shooting? It's like, where is he hearing that from? I don't know if that's real or if that's so, or if he's just calling out his partner on being a dope, <laughs> uh, being full of shit, being like, oh, I've Maybe. got a friend in the war. Like, really? What do you mean by war? I don't have that history down at all. That's a good, I mean, it's a good call. I don't know. It is. It's the first reference. And it is. It, it's It's way more, Um, it's almost just expressionistic mm-hmm. of, of where we're headed with all yeah. of this. You know, and everyone knows, again, the, the, the real assassination is looming over this entire season. And you can't watch this without getting some whiff of 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 the actual event and remember the, the, this whole season in real time when it aired we didn't know if they were even going to do there were all these stories of matt weiner not wanting to deal with it and maybe we'll just skip it and blah 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 for all we knew this was the jfk episode matthew weiner had publicly said there will not be a, Viet- a kennedy assassination episode what he finally and he's talked about this what he finally got to for himself is that he was scared to do it he was nervous he would get it wrong and once he got to that for himself he then went to work on figuring out how to do it so spoiler there will be an episode and I believe him on all that in terms of the process. What I don't believe on him, it's the, the the season is about to air. And that's when he starts talking about, I don't know if we'll do one. It's like, dude, you've mapped out the season already. <laughs> I don't think so. That's not my understanding. That's, just, that's not my understanding of how. I don't know. That's not my understanding of how the writer's room process worked. I've listened to them talk about this. You map out. You're saying that they actually were were a significant way through the season, shooting, writing, 
everything before they decided to do one at the end of the season. It's possible because because how they r- structure the writer's room is you, you structure your season and you have your major plot points that you know you need to get to. And then it is the group of writers who figure out all the subplots and all the storylines and how they're going to interweave to get to where you need to get to. You needed to get last season. You needed Don and Betty back together and, Don, and Betty is pregnant. Let's say that that's what you mm-hmm. knew. Now, how are we going to yeah, get yeah, there? Yeah. Right. You work backwards. We know there's a stable. We're going to put a stable in here. Do we have an Arthur? Do we have a, a dinner? Somebody who's, oh, let's do a dinner party and let's tie in an account. Right? Yeah, I get all that. In terms of the JFK episode, we know when it takes place in time. But as we know with Mad Men, it's not the historical events that are the significant plot points. They are mm-hmm. part of their lives. So yes, you could absolutely see mapping out these plot points and we already know when Roger's daughter's getting married, but maybe it's the next morning. You know, we don't we don't know when we visited the set. They were filming The Color Blue and The Gypsy and the Hobo, which are our episodes 10 and 11. That's what they were filming when we went out there in the middle of August mm-hmm. when Out of Town premiered. So Out of Town is the first episode it premiered. We are in California. We go to the set. They are filming and they don't normally there was there was some kind of thing that happened where two two episodes were still being filmed at once. The Color Blue episode 10 and The Gypsy and the Hobo. And what episode was and those were after episode 12. 12 was The Grown-ups. The Grown-ups. Is the Kennedy assassination episode. Halloween is Gypsy and the Hobo is Halloween. That's right. Halloween is Gypsy and the Hobo. Grown-ups airs on November 1st. So by then he knew and by the, obviously by then he knew. At some point yeah. he decided, but when we were visiting the set, we didn't get to meet with him because he went home. They said he went to his satellite office and they literally used air quotes because okay. it was he went home in a panic over writing this episode. So they're shooting episodes 10 and 11 and he still doesn't have a script for 12. I see. That's why I give it total total plausibility. Okay. And that's a fascinating timeline to have because we've yeah. none of us have ever done this, so we don't know, right? Anyway, point is because as a device, it's just a device to him. It's not it's not an imperative. No, I get that. Yeah. I just figured you'd have it mapped out sooner. I just wanted to tell you I made a reservation at La Grande at six and got you two tickets to Oliver. It's a wonderful show. I've heard that. A tragedy with a happy ending. My favorite kind. <laughs> Thank you, Joan. I want to come back to the house. We already talked about Sally and her blood-curdling scream. The fight finally comes out about the naming of the baby. Right. And Don's really angry at it. And it's just such a shitty little tit for tat. It, it really feels like Betty named him Gene just to get at Don. And it certainly feels that way to Don. And it's kind of, and there's no, this is unknowable, obviously. Yeah, it is unknowable. It, it, it definitely gets to Don. It's the first he really says it. But she's right at the same time. Of like, I mean, if you have someone who dies shortly before the birth of, that's oftentimes that baby gets named after the person who just died. Oftentimes. That scene where he goes and he hugs Sally and he just puts his arms around her. First of all, it was hard not to to look at them and go, well, those two had a great relationship. Those two actors had a great relationship. That little girl and that man just adored each other and that they got to shoot those scenes together and he got to say it's going to be okay and go ahead and just breathe. That's just lovely. But Don has also just been through a lot. He was not <laughs> he was not witness to 
the great bloodying, but he did sit with Joan in her bloody dress and the aftermath. And he really did think he was going to London. And to your point, tomorrow is just going to be another day, except Joan Mm -hmm. doesn't work there anymore. And he just had this fight with Betty about your father who hated me and and watching Betty be so unsympathetic to Sally. And then this this mind fuck of a meeting with with Connie Hilton. And I just thought Don gives a hug. Don also gets to get a hug. And we don't see a lot of that for Don. A lot of just pure loving moments. And this episode for me ending with that was a relief. <laughs> <laughs> but but he gives a wonderful speech and it's it's very heartfelt and it puts a cap on not just Sally's fears but in the larger picture our <laughs> our own fears, right? Cuz this is this is a slasher film of, a, of an episode. So there's a calming kind of effect. His line to her, we don't know who he is yet and who he's going to be. That's a wonderful thing. That speaks to anything is still possible. There's still a future, who knows. But yeah, there, there there's something to be said for being afraid of the dark, which is Sally's the, what kicks off the episode. There's something to be said for the terror and the violence that that's indicated here. And that we really don't know what we're headed for. We don't know what we're headed for. And that's the beauty of the show. And the reality of life. <laughs> Big time. When we come back, quotes. Quotes. What's your quote, Dan? Uh, so Roger walks into, is that Harry's office or is it Pete's office? I don't Someone's know, but office. somebody's going to critique me for checking you on it. So you better get that right. Shut up. <laughs> Roger walks in as all the guys are bullshitting after the after the maiming of the foot. And Roger walks in and he says, it's like Iwo Jima out there. <laughs> it's, a perfect, <laughs> it's a great, first it's a great one-liner, just a great, short, perfect little liner. I still say that. <laughs> I say that all the time. Of course you do. <laughs> you know, like if the, when my kids were younger and the, the toys would play pen and shit was everywhere, I'd kind of walk into the kitchen and I'd say, it's like Iwo Jima out there. <laughs> It's a very good all-purpose line. I recommend it to everybody. And I'll, I'll bring up again, Matthew Weiner was a comedy writer. He wrote comedy oh, yeah. for Becker. And I don't know if Northern Exposure was a comedy. I never saw it, but I think it was sort of one of these comedy dramedies. It was a dramedy. It was very, uh, I can't, it was one of those where it was always in the wrong category. It was, it was, a. Uh, it was very funny. But these episodes that have really great lines in them more often than not, Matthew Weiner is one of the writers. So it's a very Dan line because you always relate to back to how recently the war was to these guys and to Roger. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I don't know if Roger was in the Pacific Theater, but great line. Your quote It really was a funny episode. For someone losing a limb, not a metaphor, it was a very funny episode. Roger asks, Any news? And Paul says he might lose his foot. And Roger says, (laughs) Right right when he got it in the door. There you go. <laughs> and I mean, I, again, I just I can't say enough about how people are going to make jokes. And the more right. the more uncomfortable you are, the more you're going to laugh. And advertising is known for just being that, you know, the, the shortest distance between tragedy and comedy. Right. I mean, that's that's the industry for it. These aren't this isn't a dentist office or something else. <laughs> right. You know, it's like <laughs> these guys are going to be quick. They're going to be sharp and, and not kind. <laughs> <laughs> when necessary. So that was uh that was it, man. That was guy Ugh. walks into an advertising agency. Again, check show notes. We are going to refer you to Yeah, lots of good lots stuff. Lots of good stuff. And don't forget Mad Men Carousel by Matt Zoller Sites, contributed to by yours truly and my sister. Has a fantastic chapter. I mean, on every episode. It's a great book. 
and you know, here we are. We're, we're, we've rounded the curve. So yeah. the curve? The Halfway curve? through. What do you round? Curve. curve. You round a curve, right? So, you know, coming up. 723. Episode title, 723. No time to catch your breath, folks. No. 723. And it only escalates from here, right? That's how always, yeah. that's how the seasons go. It really does. It really does. And it, it's great because, you know, when you, I, I, some of these I do remember the first time through. You don't, it doesn't feel that way. You don't know. You're like, oh my God, this is a great episode. Oh, the title, it's such a thing. And you have no idea what you're in for the following week is another, is another kick in the nuts. It really is, you know, pound for pound, the best show on TV. I mean. All right, guys, we will see you. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.